You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What follows is a true story. It happened a couple weeks ago. Okay, so I'm in the car and um, this is what happened. I downloaded, I don't know what I downloaded. I downloaded some virus or something onto my computer, which I didn't mean to do. I had been um, looking for some software and um, all these websites went down one after another. My websites went down and uh, what I was working on, the page froze. And uh, where are we headed? Um, we're headed toward a computer place that I think is kind of like an emergency room for computers. It's a, a little computer place in town. Okay. I really hope I hope they're open for one, and I really hope that they can do something about this computer. I'm feeling in- in- incredibly anxious. I'm really trying not to freak out right now. Yep, that is me in a panic about my computer. It was just as I said. I downloaded something. It was actually a time-saving program, which, of course, was ironic because after I did that, I was not able to use my computer for two days. Well, what about your security software, Molly? I assume you had some. Didn't it pop up and say, hey, you sure you want to do this? Yes, it did, and I ignored the message, and I can't explain why I said yes. I guess, you know, we just get comfortable about our computers and so forth. Yeah, Um, well, shows the value of the security software. (laughs) Well, yeah, or my common sense. At any rate, I called my husband, and he had the sense to drive me to a repair place. And I left my computer there, and you know it's it's really unnerving to be separated from your computer for a couple days, never mind have your computer in the computer ICU. Yeah, well, I mean, everything's on your computer. You don't even think about it when you wake up in the morning, but you're going to spend the day looking at glowing phosphors. At any rate, I sweated this out, and I returned to pick up the computer you know, two days later, arriving the moment that they opened, and the young man... My name is Ray Sims. ...who had met me in my techno panic was also there when I returned. Well, I'm back at the computer store at Computer Courage to pick up my laptop. Is my laptop finished? Is it ready? To it is take... ready to go. Okay. Definitely ready to go. Did you actually work on the computer? I did everything on it, from the diagnostic to the cleanup. Okay. So, what did you find? When I brought it in, I figured I had downloaded a virus. Well, it definitely didn't see a virus in the traditional sense as a virus that makes your computer unusable. What I did notice is a lot of junkware. And now this junkware, it comes kind of naturally with the computer. It could be anything like the software to the attachments that come over with programs. But but there was certainly something that I downloaded, some malware, because I had I was trying to download an app. Mm-hmm. And when I did that, then this other malware attached itself. And one by one, all of my web browsers disappeared and they were replaced with this foreign 
URL. That's correct. That's correct. So some of these uh, junk programs are just as bad as malware in the fact that they'll change your your homepage to something that they want. It would increase the chances that you would get an actual viruses if you use their homepages. Ah, I see. Okay, but it was something that I downloaded. It was definitely something you downloaded, yeah. Okay. Definitely something you downloaded. So the first signs are when you see your browser doing something you don't expect it to. So you were really right in bringing it to us when this happened. Okay, so on a scale of 1 to 10 of computer emergencies, where was this? I think this was right in the middle. There was no threat of your data being sent to somebody else. Uh, the computer was functional, but it wasn't functional in the way you'd expect it to be. I'd say something like a virus taking over the computer and holding it hostage for money, which is what we see a lot of, uh, would be the highest computer emergency. What do you mean, taking it over and holding it hostage for money? What is the computer demands money? So it'll lock you out of your computer, and they'll say, you've got to buy all these gift cards at a 7-Eleven and then send it to some bank account overseas. Before it'll let you use the computer? It says it'll unlock the computer for you, but it's probably lying as well. If your computer has a webcam, I've even seen some that take a picture of you and masquerade as the FBI. Where do these viruses and where does this malware, where do they originate? Who's putting them out there into the, the cyber world? All malware, all viruses, all advertisements, they're all driven by money. All of these advertisers are trying to get you to click only on their products. So they're changing the way you browse the internet so that they can get your attention. Hopefully, you'll click on one of their links that'll give them money. And even some of the major viruses, it's a multi-billion dollar industry in the world. Okay, so we're going to get this um, computer up and running. Yep, we're going to get it up and running, give it back to you, and uh, see if you like it better. If it goes a lot faster than it did before, because it was practically unusable when you gave it to me. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. So the deal was you actually downloaded some attachments that were just kind of changing your habits, changing your preferences and stuff like that. And as Ray said, it wasn't as serious as it could have been, but it was enough to keep me from working on my computer. How's your computer working now? It's working great now because he cleaned up all of that junk that was on it, so it's moving really fast. Uh, but the scare, you know, as small as it was, it really gave me an idea of how disruptive a bug in your computer can be. Yeah. But, you know, it's one thing when your computer goes on the blink and you're out of biz for a couple of days, but it's something else entirely when an attack like this can take down a city's infrastructure, you know, take down the, the power grid. I mean, that's the kind of thing that the cybersecurity experts are really losing sleep over. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science and What the Hack? You know, it used to be that if you wanted to cripple a city, you'd uh, surround it with a choking blockade or throw burning tar balls over its walls or whatever. Take that flaming ball of tar, you heathens. But now there's no need for the attacker to leave home. Hi, could I order three boxes of microwave popcorn and a case of diet soda? You got my address and credit card number. Thanks. <laughs> I'm going to be here a while. I feel a code coming on. <laughs> now, back to Molly's computer. The bug that infected her machine, it was a headache, but it's not what the guys in the computer biz call a virus. 
Yeah, well, you know, what we would call what Molly got more grayware, or in her case, maybe even very specifically adware, or, you know, software that's going to display ads or change her settings or redirect her search web pages, and generally, as a byproduct, annoyingly slow her computer down. You know, a virus typically is a threat that is replicating across machines and then uh, usually has a much more malicious payload associated with it. Now, you heard the story of my computer meltdown. This guy will tell you another story. I'm Eric Chin, and I'm a technical director at Symantec in the Security Response Group. And here's how the story starts. The Natanz uranium facility in central Iran was producing nuclear fuel for power plants, at least according to the Iranian government. The West suspected that the plant was actually a uranium enrichment program for nuclear weapons. Now, look, there are two kinds of uranium that occur in nature, U-235 and U-238. U-235, a little less heavy. You can use that in a bomb, but you have to separate it from the much more prevalent 238. So you can do that by simply spinning it, you know, centrifuging it. Well, in 2009, a computer worm infected the Natanz facility's computer system and carried out an audacious act of sabotage. In brief, it destroyed 160 centrifuges by causing them to spin too fast. They flew apart. Remember, Ray Sims rated my computer headache midway between a 1 and a 10, presumably a virus that is able to shut down a nation's uranium enrichment facility. Now that's a 10. Eric Chin and his team studied the culprit, a virus named Stuxnet. And, Eric, uh, this worm caused the centrifuges to fly apart literally, right? You know, usually they're spinning around 1,200 or 1,300 hertz. And what Stuxnet would do was do one of two things. It would actually speed them up to about 1,400 hertz and get them going really fast and make them hit what's called a resonance frequency, or basically at a point where it begins to vibrate uncontrollably until basically it shatters. So that's like taking your washing machine and spinning up the tumbler to three times what it's supposed to be so that it begins to rock and roll and eventually blow apart. That's exactly right. And it actually then it had actually a second routine that it tried, which it would actually lower the frequency to 2 hertz, so very, very slow. And you can imagine something like a top, a little a kid's toy top that you spin, and when it gets really, really slow, it begins to wobble until it tips over and falls over. That was the second thing it tried to do. So it was wrecking this equipment that's used to make bomb-grade uranium. Now, this is obviously not the kind of virus that a basement hacker might design to get a hold of my social security number or my bank account. How would you describe the capabilities of this virus? Yeah, so, you know, Stuxnet wasn't just sort of some sort of evolution in the threat landscape. It was really much more like a revolution. It's the kinds of stuff that we really only saw happen in the movies. You know, even though in theory we knew it was possible, didn't expect anything like it. Um, you know, your average piece of malware, as you describe, would do something like try to steal your 16-digit credit card numbers or maybe throw advertisement pop-ups on your screen. Much more of an annoyance. But Stuxnet really was dramatically different. And the most important difference with Stuxnet was it caused real-world effects. We were talking about something that could cause a physical real-world damage, not just stealing you know, the virtual zeros and ones off of your computer, not just making your computer shut down or something like that, but literally causing damage in the real world and potentially even you know, killing people. 
if you were in this room, in this facility, when this happened, uh, there would potentially be uranium gas everywhere and shards of aluminum flying across the room. You know, equipment like this normally has multiple ways to stop itself from self-destruction. I mean, there, there are even mechanical interlocks in most equipment that say, look, I'm not even going to trust the software. I'm not going to trust the electronics. But if this happens mechanically, I'm just going to stop. Doesn't this equipment protect itself? Yeah, it's actually quite amazing. So, you know, in this facility, they would have had literally the big red button. And when you hit this big red button, the system should gracefully shut down. You know, the operator sitting in the plant would have heard literally centrifuges spinning up wildly. It would have caused a huge amount of noise. And they would have gone and went and hit the big red button. Unfortunately, in this facility, when you hit the big red button, that tells a computer to basically slow down these centrifuges. And Stuxnet was able to intercept that command so that when the guys hit the big red button, nothing would happen. Okay, so this is not a a garage software operation, a, a startup. I mean, this is not entrepreneurial software development. Yeah, this wasn't created by two guys, you know, sitting in a basement in Kansas somewhere, right? This, this was definitely a group that is at the level of an, a nation state. You got involved in trying to understand how Stuxnet worked. Uh, you work for Symantec. They develop software that helps protect data for, you know, companies and so forth. Uh, how did you get involved? So, you know, we're getting millions of pieces of malicious software, you know, crossing our desks uh, at any given time. Um, and the key to finding things like Stuxnet is really finding that needle in the haystack. You know, 99% of the stuff that we get, frankly, is just cybercrime-related malware, things trying to steal things like your 16-digit credit card number. And this particular piece of software, it used something called a zero-day, what we term as an exploit, that basically is allowed to run code on your system without you knowing about it. You don't have to double-click on anything. You don't have to visit a web page. It's basically a bug or an issue in your software that allows them to automatically be in running code. These types of exploits are very rare. And so when we saw that this piece of code was using one of these exploits, we began to dig in deeper. But we didn't expect anything to what we found in the end. Okay, so uh, Stuxnet virus, of course, is designed to spread itself to get to the one machine that it really wants to affect. I mean, this code isn't designed to infect as many machines as possible. It's not like the kind of thing I worry about. Actually, um, what's interesting about Stuxnet is that you have to remember Natanz isn't just some facility sitting on the Internet. You know, it's not like they're that silly that they have their uranium enrichment plugged into the general Internet. It's what we call air-gapped, which means it's a network that is separated physically from the Internet. There's air between it and the Internet. So they had to somehow breach into the Natanz network. And so what they actually did was have Stuxnet spread to any sort of Windows machine out there. It didn't discriminate. It didn't have code in it that said, hey, I think this machine is sitting in Iran. Let me infect it and not some other machine, for example, sitting in the United States. It would infect any machine anywhere in the world. And that's ultimately how we discovered it. We obviously don't do business in Iran. We actually found it on machines outside of Iran originally. The reason why they had to be that aggressive was because of this air gap. Their hope was they would infect enough machines that eventually they would infect someone who would then plug a USB key into their machine physically cross over the air gap, walk into the Nutanz facility, plug in that same USB key in the Nutanz facility, and then subsequently infect the machines controlling the centrifuges. So what you're saying is the way it got into the centrifuge facility in the first place was not via the Internet. It's not because somebody was surfing, I don't know, whatever they were surfing on the Internet. It was physical. I mean, somebody dropped a a thumb drive, uh, what you call a USB key, into the facility there? 
That's exactly right. Now, this person likely wasn't someone who knew was specifically inserting that USB key to infect the facility, but someone who actually at one point was just generally surfing the Internet, infected their computer unknowingly, then infected their USB key unknowingly, and then walked into the facility. This would be someone like a contractor who was, for example, responsible for the programming of those centrifuges or something like that. Could I have uh, the Stuxnet virus on my laptop at home? You could, absolutely. Now, it wouldn't cause anything to blow up on your machine. It would just sit there silently and try to replicate across to another machine, but absolutely. So it had to know what it was looking for. I mean, this, this was a bit of software on a mission. It only had to do one job to one machine. How did it know when it had found that machine? You know, it actually had a fingerprinting routine. So, you know, the machines it was looking for are actually two types of machines. One were Windows machines, but two was something called a PLC, or a Programmable Logic Controller. Imagine sort of a, a small mini computer that's solely designed to control some sort of industrial automation, like a robotic arm, or in this case, centrifuges. What it would do is those little mini computers are connected to those Windows machines. And when it was on those Windows machines, it would reach out and say, hey, is there any PLCs connected to me? And then if so, what do they look like? It would actually take a fingerprint. It would look for special magic values of code on those little PLCs. And if it found this thing that it was looking for, it would say, hey, it looks like we're in a TANS. Now let's launch our payload about spinning up or spinning down these centrifuges. It sounds to me like you must have had somebody on the ground there at Natanz who knew something about those codes. Absolutely. They would have had to steal all the design documents and the code that was running inside Natanz for this to be effective. Were you able to determine ever, was anybody able to determine ever, who did this? And, you know, we aren't able to determine that. There's nothing in the code that says, I did it. Um, Even if there was, you know, it's never reliable. Someone could be trying to frame someone else, for example. You know, there are media reports out there that it's likely some sort of, you know, nation state. You know, what we can say is it's pretty clear that it would have to be uh, a nation state that had the interest in stopping Iran's nuclear program. Well, finally, Eric, the Stuxnet virus, that's a couple of years back now already. How do you imagine the sophistication of computer viruses has changed since then? I mean, what kind of scenarios are keeping you awake at night? You know, things only go one way, and and that is more sophisticated, more complex. Um, We're not seeing things go backwards. You know, our biggest fear is when you look at things like Stuxnet, Stuxnet, even though we discovered it in 2010, you know, seems to have dated back to much earlier than that, even way back to 2005. So it was out there floating around, unbeknownst to anyone, potentially trying to steal information like those design docs, and then eventually doing things like launching its payload. So, you know, the biggest fear, what keeps us at night, are pieces of code that are out there that we're unable to recognize today, and we don't potentially discover until, you know, a year or a month later. Eric Chin, thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you. Eric Chen is a technical director at Symantec Corporation in the Security Response Group. It is really an incredible story. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, it's impressive and simultaneously very scary. I, I think what really sticks in my mind is that the virus was transported on a USB stick. Yeah, just a thumb drive, the kind that they give out at conferences and parties and so forth. Hey, yeah, here's a free thumb drive. <laughs> Well, as we heard, this Stuxnet virus unfortunately won't be the last of the big cyber weapons. Coming up, how scientists plan to stay one step ahead of the harmful hackers. Also, meet the architect of the Internet of Everything. 
Will more computer connections make us safer or more vulnerable? It's What the Hack from Big Picture Science. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The nature of cyber threats is changing. For a long time, the focus, at least at the public level, was on internet security malware attacking your computer, as Molly experienced, or a cyber criminal getting hold of your credit card information, and suddenly you've just bought yourself a new Mercedes, or at least bought someone a new Mercedes. But now, as it may be becoming obvious, there's been a shift to worries about the cybersecurity of major infrastructure. We're connected in new ways. The nature of cyber threat has certainly evolved in the last 10 years. One of the biggest determinants of this has been the arrival of the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things. Now, we'll hear more from Shankar Sastre about how his team is trying to protect us against cyber attack. But first, why we're increasingly vulnerable to it. Let's come back to that phrase, the Internet of Things. You may recognize its other name, the Internet of Everything. Paul Jacobs, I'm the chairman and CEO of Qualcomm. The chairman of the wireless tech company has a vision for making lives more organized, more convenient, more connected. With the Internet of Everything, everyday objects, devices, apps, everything is woven together seamlessly via the Internet. As computer chips become smaller and more powerful, they're more easily implanted into objects and into human beings. A goal of Paul Jacobs is to vastly improve healthcare by gathering vital signs from you in real time. Paul Jacobs outlined his vision for greater connectivity to a group of tech-savvy students and professors on the University of California, Berkeley campus. Molly attended the talk. And was probably the least techno-savvy person there. Paul, you just gave a talk here at Berkeley, and one of the things you did was you asked everyone in the audience whether or not there was anyone there who did not have a smartphone. I actually was one of the people who raised my hand and said I did not have one. And you said it would be your job then to convince that person or those few people why they needed to be connected. And you want to try to convince me? Well, I hope I showed you reasons why you should be connected so you can have access to the rest of the knowledge of uh, humanity, other people. In the future, you're going to have access to healthcare. You're going to be able to interact with the world around you. And in fact, the notion of the talk that I gave was about how these devices are evolving so much and that connectivity is being proliferated into the world around us that it's almost like you're going to get another sense. You'll have this merger of the physical world and the digital world that we all have huge parts of our lives in today, but they're not really connected to the physical world that we live in. In the future, it's going to be, and that's going to happen through your smartphone and through other devices that you'll carry around with you. This is a sense that you call the sixth sense, and indeed you imagine a world that is hyper-connected, if I can use that phrase. Can you give me a vision of what that means for all the devices to be connected or the Internet of everything, what that means? 
Well, it's going to mean that you're going to have a lot of uh, ability to control the environment around you. You're going to have information coming from people and places that you go to. So whether it's in the home and you know where your kids are, you know what the lights are, whether the doors are open or closed, whether the appliances are on, whether the freezer door got left open, whether the washing machine just finished and you need to go put the clothes in the dryer. You know, all of this stuff will come to you if you need information about how your business is running. That will come right to the device. May even come to your a device that's sitting on your wrist. We showed off a smartwatch that we've been working on. So the idea is that everything is connected to everything else, or say your refrigerator and your car and other people are connected to your phone, or are they connected to each other as well with sensors? Uh, things will be connected to each other, and you'll actually make the decisions about how those things are authorized to talk to each other. So. I gave the example of sitting in my car. When my friend gets in my car, I'm perfectly happy for them to use the microphones and speakers and displays and control the car. When they get out of the car, I don't necessarily want them being able to use my microphone anymore and eavesdropping on me. So these networks of trust will actually come up and they'll be put together and come apart based on proximity. I mean, it's another way of saying, if I'm in the room with you, I'm willing to share more information than I am if I'm not with you. And so that's another way that proximity will actually have this impact on our lives. Um, one of the areas where you really see possibility for this is in healthcare. Can you explain that, what that means? And doesn't that require that we actually put some of these devices, these sensors, in our own bodies? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the problem with healthcare is it's too expensive, so it's bankrupting the developed world. Plus, we have uh, this age wave, so there's not going to be enough doctors to take care of all of us as we get older. And in the developing world, there's just not enough healthcare. And so we're trying to find ways to use wireless technology to help manage things like chronic disease. But we're also using these different kinds of sensors to detect, you know, if you're a diabetic, what's your blood sugar levels? Do you, I need to take insulin? Do I need to eat some sugar? What do I need to do? Any kinds of, of these disease states you can monitor. And in fact, we've done a prize with the XPRIZE Foundation to build the Star Trek tricorder in real life. So there's 40 teams right now competing for a $10 million prize in three and a half years to build a device that's five pounds or less that can diagnose 15 disease states better than or equal to a panel of board certified physicians. And if you want to think about something that's even farther out than that, we're doing clinical trials on a sensor that goes inside your bloodstream and will detect two weeks ahead of time whether you're going to have a heart attack because it can detect stuff that starts circulating through your blood because cells are dying because you're about to have a heart attack. And so you can imagine getting the phone call from your phone saying, hey, go to the doctor now because in two weeks you know, it's some trouble coming. The final question is, doesn't this make us incredibly vulnerable when all this information is out there on these mobile devices, but also personal information, devices are implanted in our own body. One of the big concerns right now is not just privacy, but cybersecurity. So doesn't it make all of us very vulnerable? Well, the issue is that you're vulnerable already. I mean, the systems that you depend on today are extremely vulnerable. So in fact, what we're working on is to build more security into the systems, whether it's through hardware that's going on, whether it's the ability to upgrade these systems, whether it's redundancy that we build into the system so that if one system's compromised, another system will still work. And that's what we're working on technology to do those kinds of things. Paul Jacobs, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thanks a lot. And that noise of the crowd, that is the, the crowd that has waited to talk to you. So I will let you go to them. Thank you so much. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Paul Jacobs is the chairman and CEO of Qualcomm. Okay, this is an optimistic, really, it's a visionary's vision of technology and being uber-connected through the Internet of Everything. 
So we return to Shankar Sastri, the dean of the College of Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley. He's involved in designing security for physical infrastructure, you know, the electrical grid, transportation, financial systems. Dr. Sastri is the director of Trust, Team for Research in Ubiquitous Secure Technology. The research center, which dates from 2006, is based on the Berkeley campus and it's funded by the National Science Foundation. Its mission is to develop a scientific approach to cybersecurity that is not simply reactive patchwork and to stay well ahead of hackers in an ever-escalating game of cat and mouse. So as a consequence of this shift towards the cyber infrastructure, we certainly have a lot more conveniences, but also a great deal more vulnerabilities. And these are vulnerabilities of systems where the word crash is more than a metaphor. If there were glitches in computer systems that control traffic or air transportation or electric power, these are actually major outages. They could result in damage to life and limb. So the nature of the threats has evolved to be ones where you're actually talking about the safety, the physical safety of people. And in that sense, this represents really a dramatic uptick from the inconvenience of having uh, your computer be shut down for repair, or even the financial inconvenience of having your identity theft and having lost money. But in addition to the financial infrastructure, the physical infrastructure, oil, water, gas, are the three big examples that come to mind. And also the medical infrastructure is getting to be equally important. For instance, with the push towards electronic medical records or personal health records, a lot more about a person's health is now recorded electronically. But it's also our physical safety that you're concerned with. So when you talk about water, oil, and gas, those are important resources that we need. But our highway system, or I hate to think of it, our airport system, these are all systems that are vulnerable to attack. Absolutely. So transportation systems are equally important. I did say water, oil, and gas, of course, I neglected electricity, communications, and certainly both transportation, both air and road transportation infrastructures are equally important. So the issues with protecting them are that the infrastructures are privately owned these physical infrastructures are privately owned. And so security of them is a collective good. But the investment decisions that people make in protecting them are individual decisions. So something for us to think about collectively is how to invest in the common good. So when we're talking about scale, perhaps what is more instructive is the Stuxnet attack on the Iranian centrifuges. Now, is that the sort of attack that you and your colleagues are trying to prevent here in this country or elsewhere in the world? Absolutely. The uh, attacks on control systems, on industrial control systems, of which the Stuxnet was an exemplar, there was a more recent example of attacks on oil and gas networks on the East Coast. These are absolutely scary. And sort of to be able to protect our physical infrastructures against those kinds of attacks is, uh, is certainly a pretty important item. Now, how have we been able to fend them off so far? Why haven't we had the equivalent of Stuxnet here in this country? Has it been luck, or is it that our talents are, are just equal with that of the hackers, or just a little bit beyond what the hackers can do right now, but your goal is to keep the, the defense systems evolving? That's a fantastic question. A question that always gets asked is, why should one do more when we haven't seen 
a meltdown and we haven't had a big attack. And the reasons have been that, as you correctly pointed out, has that it has been a bit of an arms race in that the hackers have done a certain amount and we've done a little bit more to get ahead of them. And so far, we've been, we've been more or less successful in sort of fending off big attacks. There have been exemplars of attacks on traffic systems, on the independent systems operator for electricity, which have been contained. But going forward, we need to get beyond this sort of arms race about uh, the hacker does something and we do something better. And that's what we are proposing by really taking a new look at this science of cybersecurity. So these attacks are going on all the time. The attacks aren't necessarily reported because they're they're thwarted, but cyber attacks are happening all the time. The scale of the attacks that are not reported are really quite stupendous. And uh, I think it would probably be scary to really know about the true magnitude of the attacks that have been thwarted. And what's uh, more dramatic is the frequency of these attacks is actually going up. It sounds as though your concern to the approach so far to cybersecurity has been that it's been a reactive one. It's putting on these patches where we identify there to be holes, and that you want something that's more proactive or that anticipates attacks. And you used a phrase called the science of security. In what way can security be a science? Isn't it more a feat of engineering? So this is really the $64,000 question. We started a cybersecurity center here called Trust, uh, which is a partnership with Berkeley, Cornell, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, and Vanderbilt. And the issue is, is this engineering or is there a, an understanding of the basic mechanisms of treating these attacks and the basic methods of then preventing the spread of the attacks? And I think the best analogy I can think of is that of a science of public health. When we think about public health, we think about the onset of disease, you think about epidemiology, you think about the spread of disease, containment of disease, and the treatment of disease. And each one of these has a science base to it. But then when it comes time to put in systems to implement this, there is technology as well as a system, as well as best practices. So putting all of these together, the way we've decided to do in fields like public health is a challenge that is ahead of us. So this, I think, transcends either a science or a technology, uh, science or a technology alone uh, agenda. You know, this immune system analogy is really an excellent one. You know, it's the use of the term viruses and worms is not an accident. It's really evocative of the fact that it really is like infection. I realize this is still early days in uh, preventing these cyber attacks and so forth, but can you give me an example of something specific that you've learned that infrastructure can do to um, strengthen its defense system? During the course of these last seven years of trust, we've really come up with a large number of products which have either found their way into startups, you know, then become part of the Valley ecosystem, which provide financial security. One which went public recently was called FireEye, which was on security for mobile devices. So that's an exemplar of security solutions which are in every mobile device. Well, what does FireEye do? So FireEye actually provides uh, system solutions for the security of distributed wireless networks. Can you be more specific on what is vulnerable in a wireless system in a mobile device? Where is there a hole that, that FireEye can help protect? 
So the two major vulnerabilities of wireless devices are during the time that they are being registered, that someone can discover the encryption scheme of the wireless device and then be able to break in and thereby change the communications. And the second one is to actually actively jam them to prevent them from receiving signals. The specific kinds of vulnerabilities that are addressed in FireEye are the first kind. And they do so in a rather clever way, which uses some clever encryption techniques, but also some very clever systems techniques for preventing hacking during the initial startup period of the cell phones or other wireless devices. And finally, I have to ask, I I would assume that a lot of your work is secretive, meaning that there's a good deal that you can talk about and put on the record. Uh, Perhaps this is a wrong assumption, but because of the nature of your business, that there are meetings and details about security that you're not allowed to discuss. There's undoubtedly a lot of material about security and privacy, which is which is sensitive. At the university here, we've made a conscious decision to work exclusively in the public domain. So everything that we do is stuff we can talk about in public. Everything that we do is publishable, and everything that we we actually work on is stuff we can share with an international community. So no meetings in secret bunkers where all of the documents have been blacked out, that sort of thing? No, there's nothing that's classified in our work here. My colleagues requested that we do this from the beginning. It's also the rules of the university that we don't undertake classified work. So it has been a very good decision for us to do all this work completely out in the open. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Great questions. Shankar Sastri is Dean of the College of Engineering at the University of California in Berkeley and Director of Trust. Okay, we've outlined the threat. It's enough to make you get off the grid and go completely Swiss Family Robinson. Fritz, we've gone completely Swiss Family Robinson. Whatever that is. Now grab this rope and pull the water bucket up to the treehouse. I'll ring the triangle to let the family know it's dinner time. Wait, who are you texting? But on the other hand, maybe they have the right idea. At least living in a tree, you'd retain some actual physical skills, some arboreal accomplishments. Because as it is, we're losing our ability to do stuff, like fly airplanes. Coming up, writer Nicholas Carr on what happens to our brains when we let the machines take over. It's What the Hack on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
We've been talking so far in this show about the fact that we've entrusted our personal data and the operation of our vital infrastructure to fiberglass boards studded with surface mount electronics, shuffling zeros and ones that might or might not be uh, very reliably coded. It may sound cool, but it makes us vulnerable to cyber attack. Well, there's another threat that arises when we let the machines do ever more work for us. And I'm not talking about welding a car chassis, although they do that too. We're certainly, I think, on the verge of further expansion of computer automation into lots of professional work. So doctors uh, not only using computers to help them look at x-rays, but carrying computers into exam rooms and relying on the computer to do the diagnosis, accountants using them in financial audits. We're creating computers now that really can analyze information and make judgments. Journalist Nicholas Carr was one of the first to voice his blunt skepticism about the so-called utopia that we're building with each new line of computer code. His 2008 article in The Atlantic, Is Google Making Us Stupid?, tapped into our anxieties about the Internet. And he did nothing to assuage those anxieties in the book that followed, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And as you can imagine, he doesn't think what it's doing is altogether good. He drew on studies in neuroscience that suggested that our online lives have interfered with our ability to think deeply. And now another article in the November 2013 Atlantic, The Great Forgetting. We've become so complacent about letting the machines take over that we're forgetting how to do stuff ourselves, like pilot an airplane. Well, we've developed machines, particularly computerized ones, that are very reliable and that can do all sorts of things from making judgments to piloting aircraft that are amazing. And they can, usually they work fine, but what happens is that it creates what psychologists call automation complacency on the part of people, which means we just begin to trust the machines or the computers to work so flawlessly that we start to tune out ourselves and we lose what's called situation, uh, situational awareness and when something goes wrong, and sooner or later something always goes wrong, uh, people start to react as if they had lost their talent and, and lost their uh, ability to even know what's going on. Well, it sounds like it, it isn't a matter of the fact that the machines are doing all this complex stuff, taking over our job so much. It's that they're taking over our skills, maybe. I mean, you cite in your Atlantic article two disturbing incidents of pilot error that ended in disaster. Can, can you kind of summarize what happened there? Yeah, there were two uh, two plane crashes in very, you know, very close to each other in early 2009. One was a, a small commuter flight going into Buffalo, and the other was a very large uh, jumbo jet flying from Brazil to Paris. And in both cases, there was a stall warning, which is just a you know, the, the plane was losing what's called lift, and it, it, it risked going into an aerodynamic stall. And it came on suddenly at the same time that the autopilot systems cut off. And what happened in both cases is the pilot at the controls did precisely the wrong thing, pulled back on the control stick, which raises the nose and, and loses speed rather than pushing forward, which is what their pilots are trained to do in the case of stall warnings. And in, in both cases, they actually seem to have caused a stall rather than preventing one, and the planes crashed and everyone was killed. Well, but what you're saying is that they were trained to do the right thing, but when push came to shove, I mean, you know, they, they were kind of woke up, hey, there's something wrong here, 
the computer isn't flying the plane anymore. And, and despite their training, they acted like novices. I mean, is, is that an indictment of the training or is that an indictment of the autopilots? It's, I, I think it's an uh, indictment of the autopilots, which, which have come, there's, there's increasing evidence and, and there's many good things to be said about flight automation and, and historically it has improved safety. But there are real concerns that it's gone too far now. And, you know, the average pilot on the average flight is act, actually manning the controls for about three minutes. And what happens is you get, the, you get that complacency that you start to tune out. And when something goes wrong, suddenly you just, you're, you're, you're disoriented. And you also get an erosion of skills because you're just not practicing manual flying enough. The Airline Pilots Association has gone so far as to say that pilots are forgetting how to fly. Is, is that really true? I mean, these are pretty dramatic incidents, but there are always dramatic incidents when it comes to airline safety. Is, is it really true? I mean, is, is this demonstrable that pilots really are making the wrong decisions in emergencies now, more so than they would have in the past? It's demonstrable from the evidence that's that's been collected by automation experts and what are called human factors researchers, that the manual flying skills of pilots seem to have decayed. Uh, and it seems to be a, a, a function of the fact that they're simply not exercising those skills as much as they used to. And so the good, the good news is flight automation systems usually work fine. Um, the bad news is sometimes they don't. And when that happens, you, want, you don't want a pilot that's rusty. Well, normally I would defend the humans. I, <laughs> I prefer to defend humans. But on the other hand, maybe we've picked the wrong guy to, well, pick on. Because maybe the problem is that these automated systems aren't yet good enough. Let's, let's make the autopilots better, and then this won't happen. Well, that's, uh, that's the paradox that, you know, definitely one, one way to go in a, what a lot of s software programmers and engineers want to do, which is kind of get rid of the human being if they make mistakes, uh, the problem is that pushes the human being out of the picture more and more. The human being gets rustier and rustier. And unfortunately, we can't make an infallible system, particularly these complex systems. And a good example is before those crashes I talked about, there was the, the famous Sullenberger um, landing where Chesley Sullenberger landed that plane on the Hudson River successfully after both engines were taken out by birds. Those things happen in... You've got to have a human being in there who's going to handle that. Well, what about other areas where uh, automation is endangering our skill sets? There's a very subtle example that has to do with the reading of x-rays. Um, and so what a lot of radiologists today do is they use software that highlights uh, particular areas that are suspicious. And in many cases, that helps the, the doctor focus in on areas that end up being, you know, having a tumor or early stage tumor or something suspicious. But in other cases, they become so focused on the highlighted areas that they don't pay enough attention to other parts of the x-ray and as a result can miss something that they, they really shouldn't miss. And, and that's an example of what's called automation bias, which means we tend to believe whatever the computer's telling us to the point where we'll kind of tune out from any other source of information, like our own eyes and ears, for example. But, of course, nobody really wants to go back to uh, doing too much of this routine manual labor kind of job, right? I mean, uh, nobody wants to bolt the car wheels on by 
hand anymore at the automobile assembly plant. I mean, uh, you know, how, how are we going to how are we going to fix this? How are we going to back out of this? Well, there, I mean, I think there's a practical and a philosophical answer. And the practical answer is we can design automated systems that share control a little more equally with the person who's running them in order to keep the person aware of the situation and to give a chance to develop his or her skills. And then on the philosophical side, the fact is that even though we think we may not want to make any effort anymore, we're not really satisfied when we sit back and allow something else to do all our work for us. There is something fulfilling about struggling with something hard in actually doing it. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we just say, let the computer do it and I'll, you know, go shopping. Yeah. Well, is it possible? I mean, this scenario, I mean, it sounds like a really tough problem because on the one hand, all the routine stuff you want to automate, but sometimes there's danger in the routines, you know, that you're not noticing something in the routine stuff that isn't routine. So we end up sort of monitoring the computer monitors, as it were. We're staring at screens. We're not very good at that, are we? No. And in fact, that's pretty well demonstrated by many, many years of experiments that go all the way back to World War II when the British military discovered that in studies of people watching radar just found that they couldn't really pick up anything after about a half an hour. You'd, you'd kind of tune out. And that seems to be about the limit for people when they're looking at screens and trying to observe some change going on. Uh, you can do it for maybe a half an hour and that's it. So we've we've designed these very complex automated systems in a way that puts us, the human being, into the position of the observer, the monitor, uh, looking out for anomalies, and that turns out to be a job that we're really, really bad at. I don't have a GPS system in my car, and I alternate between thinking that I'm being a Philistine about this and then thinking that at least I still know how to navigate. I mean, what's the truth? There is, again, quite a bit of evidence, growing evidence, that our navigational skills, our kind of natural navigational skills, also begin to erode when we use Google Maps or GPS systems to get around. And and sometimes this has pretty severe consequences uh, where, you know, truck drivers will drive into to bridge bank abutments or lo low overpasses because they simply are trusting the computer and so they don't even bother reading the road signs. But at a more personal level, I think there is this kind of slow erosion of even not only just our navigational skills, but kind of our sense of place as we simply listen to a computerized voice say, take a left, take a right. You're not exercising what seems to be a very deep and important skill, actually, to all animals, but also to human beings, which is the skill of figuring out where you are and where you're going. You describe our increasingly automated world as a choice about which tasks to hand off to the machines. But, I mean, hey, that was kind of drudge work. I'm, I'm glad to be rid of it. There's some work that is drudge work, and we should be glad that we have machines to do it. But I think there are a couple of choices. One is to make better choices about how we design the automated systems themselves to make sure we're, we're not actually, you know, making things more dangerous because we're getting people to tune out, and so they react poorly. But then there's the the more existential choice. Are are we content to let our skills, these rich talents, evaporate because we're looking to computers, robots, other types of automated systems to take over all the hard tasks we used to do? 
And is that really the best path to a satisfying, fulfilling life when we know that developing these skills is really what gives us pleasure and, and makes us feel like we have a place in the world? Nicholas Carr, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you. Nicholas Carr is the author of The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, and of the forthcoming The Glass Cage. His article, The Great Forgetting, is in the November 2013 issue of The Atlantic. You know, we talk a lot about inventing our replacements, how by the end of the century, artificial intelligence will make us obsolete. But here we are, voluntarily allowing them to take over our skill sets. Yeah, usually when we talk about it on this program, the machines have evolved so much that we don't have much of a choice. Now, you were talking about uh, the machines being perhaps better than the humans, but earlier in the show and for most of the show, we've been talking about whether or not humans can outpace humans. I mean, who will be smarter? Is it going to be the hackers are going to develop codes that are smarter than the security personnel who are trying to keep them out. Yeah, no, it's definitely a race. And, you know, it's kind of special because this is the first time in history where you worry about the enemy, not in terms of their armament, but their ability to get a bunch of guys to sit down at a desk and write some instructions. But the good guys at least know they have to pay attention, and that's the heartening news. Thanks to our production team for this program, and they are certainly not hacks. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Google, Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. And your ears have been attuned to What the Hack. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. While you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. You can find it on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio, because after all, you don't need to download the program from a possibly insecure internet, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.